Good morning. My name is Andy, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a delight to, to be here with you this morning. We're going to be in God's Word uh, together, and uh, let me encourage you to turn in First Peter uh, to First Peter chapter 1. We'll be at the end of that, verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. And as we prepare to do that, I'd love to lead us in a prayer uh, here together this morning. Father, thank you so much for what we've just heard what we've just sung, that Jesus has come. Oh, what a night to remember. What a glorious night that you stepped into the earth that you created to redeem it, to bring it uh, back to yourself in in your loving arms uh, because we had fallen. We had uh, plunged into darkness and we needed you. We needed you to intervene. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming as this uh, tiny baby. Thank you for growing into that pure and spotless lamb who is sufficient to take away our sins when you died at the cross. God, thank you for each person that's here. Uh, I do thank you so much for the, 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 each volunteer, each teacher, each small group leader, uh, each person invested in our kids here at Cornerstone. And I thank you for these precious souls which you've entrusted us with alongside their parents. God, thank you uh, that we, we get to partner together in helping them to know you and to love you and to follow you. And we want that for all of us, whether we're children or whether we're uh, far from being children. God, uh, thank you. And God, we invite you to speak to us now by your spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I wonder this morning, how many of you ever have a hard time loving other people? <laughs> Anybody? It's hard to love sometimes, isn't it? Especially if, if, uh, if people you know, are different than us, if we think differently, if we come from different backgrounds. Sometimes, for a variety of reasons, it's hard to love other people, even those we know quite well. And as we observe the American church over the last couple of years, I would argue that our love for each other has been tested like no other time in at least the history that I've been around. I realize I'm not that old, but I have been around for a little while in the church, and I haven't seen anything like what we've experienced in the last couple of years. See, we we face some adversity, haven't we? It's so good to to kind of step out of that this morning and just listen to the kids. And I I just, I I love seeing the kids together and singing and enjoying the presence of the Lord and of each other. But but lingering in the background, we we know that we've faced some adversity these last couple of years. We've added to to the issues the things that we've been prone to divide over as the church, in, in part because new issues have become more prevalent, haven't they? And I get it. And I'm going to be a little bit raw this morning, but I, but I think you'll understand the context as, as we go. And it strikes me that here I am being a little bit raw on a morning uh, where we've just had this wonderful experience. Um, don't worry about it. We'll be okay. But, but the text dictates where we're going here this morning in First Peter. I mean, w- w- when we think about, uh, whether we think about, you know, what, whatever we think about masks or, or vaccinations or issues of, of racism complicated by uh, issues of sexual ethics, all these kind of political issues, we, we've had a lot to think about here over these last couple of years, right? It's been a challenge. And because of that, I want to remind you of something that I've shared in the past that I think is going to help set a platform for our discussion today from the text. And I think it'll help bring some perspective. See, historically, the church has always had theological deal breakers, okay? Uh, Lines in the sand, if you will, that it's refused to cross. Things like what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15 as matters of first importance. The the historical person of Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. We can say amen to that, right? Amen. We we speak of Jesus' virgin birth. We're going to talk about that the next couple of weeks uh, here at Cornerstone as we dive into uh, a Christmas series. 
We think of his atoning death, his resurrection, his bodily return. We think of the Trinity. Uh, These and several other issues are issues that the church has always agreed on. These are issues that that I would call die-over issues, okay? These are issues that we're willing to die for, at least I am, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and I think we're called to be. These are important things. And things that might be compromised in this category, we, we would use a word that I don't like to word because I think it gets overused, but it's helpful for our discussion today. We, we would call them heretical. If you compromise on these things, these central issues of the faith, you might be some version of religion that, that hearkens to Christianity, but you're not actually a part of the camp, okay? Now, we got to be careful with the word, as I referenced. To call something or somebody heretical is a big deal. <laughs> and if we do, we really ought to know what we're talking about. And yet, if we're honest, heresy exists all over the place, often even in what some people would call you know, the, the church these days. And, and that's always been true. <laughs> Heretics popped up right from the beginning. I mean, that's why uh, people got together in these early councils and said, okay, we need to study the scripture. We need to study what the prophets have written, the apostles have written, and we need to make sure we understand what are these core central tenets of our faith. And so here we have the Apostles' Creed, we have the Nicene Creed, other things that have helped to us, us to affirm and to articulate that which has always been true and of first importance. Now, that said... The church has also recognized that there are perhaps those who are in the camp of the Christian faith who who might be genuine Christ followers, but who have significant differences on various doctrines, all right? Not not small issues, but but also not not die issues, okay? Not this central category. Things like the role of church leadership and tradition or or how to handle communion and and baptisms or or, uh, how to understand the gifts of the Spirit and and so on. And, And these are what I would call divide issues. And because of how integral they are to a church's concept of discipleship and, and, and its understanding of how to interpret scripture, and because they're important issues, it remains difficult to maintain direct, ongoing uh, fellowship on all things. It's not that churches in these categories don't partner on some things. They, they do, and they can, and they should. But it makes sense they don't partner on all things. Th- these are divide issues. Now, a third category exists. And this category acknowledges that the people who affirm the inerrancy of Scripture and its absolute authority in all of our lives may disagree on certain topics about which uh, we, we have less clarity from the text. And even within our own church, here at Cornerstone, there, there are issues that I might disagree with, uh, with somebody else in our leadership. And we might sit down, we might have a cup of coffee, maybe even a latte if we're really excited, and, and we might talk a little bit, and we might hang out, and we might say, you know what, I think you're wrong on that, but I love you, and I'm not going to divide over this issue with you. These are non-divisive issues, okay? We put these in the debate category, <laughs> So, so you want to come to me and you say, hey, I've got some specific ideas about the second coming of Christ. I want to talk to you about that. I might say, let's talk. Let's hang out. And, and you might say, well, I think Jesus is going to come in the middle of the tribulation. And I might say, well, no, I'm really pretty convinced he's going to come at the beginning of it, before it. And we might have a well-meaning conversation. But at the end of that conversation, I, I might prove to you that you're wrong. LAUGHTER but we're still going to be friends, at least as far as I'm concerned, all right? We're not going to divide over that issue. We're certainly not going to die over it, okay? We'll debate it, and we ought to, because is it important? 
Well, of course it's important. It's in the text. The Bible talks about the coming of Christ. We ought to wrestle with some of these things, but in humility, we understand that the Bible is less clear on some things than others. That's why Paul referenced matters of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I scared you this morning. I could feel the tension as we got started here, and believe me, I feel that. But why belabor this this morning? Why do we start here? See, I think that, that more than at any other point in our history, since, since I've been in ministry anyway, we, we've been pressed to conflate these issues, the, these categories, in either one direction or the other. First, we, we've been pressed to make everything a die issue. Okay? We've been pressed to make everything a die issue, thereby drawing theological and social lines in the sand that our church forefathers never would have even considered, that we wouldn't have condoned. And see, the, the logical outcome of, of making everything a die issue is to slip into what we call in the church sometimes legalism. I'm just throwing out all the big words today, all right? Legalism. To, to assign heresy flippantly. To, to claim that if you don't like what I do on every issue, we cannot fellowship together. And, and books such as Galatians and the Sermon on the Mount that we were in earlier this year, or last year, one of those years, I forget, um, addresses this powerfully. Church legalism is dangerous territory. But at the same time, we're also being pressed in another direction, aren't we? See, we're, we're being asked to consider that nothing is worth dying for. That nothing is worth dying for except, of course, the, the dogma and doctrine of our current culture. See, current culture, our, our current social constructs are, are pressing us to push biblical doctrine into the background and to take a back seat to, to, modern, to modern philosophers and pundits and, and political operatives. And, and these doctrines that our supposedly progressive culture uh, is writing is threatening to push aside that which has been understood as core, as foundational for church belief and doctrine for 2,000 years. And this, too, is dangerous territory. Both of these extremes are, are dangerous, something to pay attention to. And, and so for the rest of the time that we spend today, I'm going to figure this all out for us. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No way. No way. No way can I do that. It'd be nice, but that's not how it works. I just snorted while I was preaching. That was awesome. <laughs> I'm not going to solve all these issues for us today, but it does press one primary question that I want to answer. At least I want to try to from the text, and it's this. As those called to represent Jesus to a dying world, how do we function together in the midst of all of these external pressures? And more pointedly, more specifically, how, how do we love each other? How, how do we love each other in the midst of what we're facing? Because let's be honest, we're under threat. We're under threat. And not just from external forces, not just from the stereotypical places we might consider. Uh, we, we have to understand we're under threat at a variety of, of levels in different ways. And, and we have to ask, how does the church function? How do we stand firm together as we're pushed increasingly into this place of exile? And as if I haven't already, I'm, I'm going to be raw with you here a little bit. I'm, I'm so grateful for how this congregation is stuck together. I look, at, I look at you guys, and I'm in awe of how the Spirit of God has, has kept you together during these last couple of years. It's been incredible. We, we've had some hard conversations. <laughs> we've wrestled with some stuff. We've probably disagreed with each other at varying times. In fact, even some have left over those things. And, and we're just going to be honest about that. 
But by and large, we, we've stuck together and we're still building the kingdom together, church, and that's amazing. <laughs> Our giving is healthy. We're, we're reaching kids and families. I mean, did you see all those kids here? Wasn't that cool? I love that. I love hearing stories. I love sharing stories of how God is at work. We're seeing people coming to know Jesus right here in our midst. I got to talk with one of our pastors just a little bit ago who got to, got to share the gospel and somebody responded and prayed to receive Christ. Guys, that happens here. Not just, not just every once in a blue moon, but regularly. We're in a good place. So I'm not here to beat you up this morning, okay? That's not what I'm here to do, all right? I promise you that. I want to encourage you, but I also want to warn you. Because I'm, I'm concerned that the further along we go into to the environment in which we find ourselves, whether it's the pandemic or other social pressures, the, the more pressure we face from the disease itself, and there's pressure there, isn't it? Some people have gotten sick, and even people within our church here that, that have gotten sick. We, we face pressure from, from perhaps governments or from social institutions, both, both national and local. The, the, the easier, the longer we, we go into this pandemic, the, the easier it's going to be to slide into one of two of those places. To either everything's a diet thing or everything is, is a nothing. <laughs> everything's uh, beholden to social constructs. And friends, I'm here to, to invite us. We, we dare not do either. <laughs> we dare not do either. And, and the burden that I feel is, is perhaps, and I think probably, the same burden that Peter felt for the elect exiles of the dispersion in Asia Minor in the first century. They were in a tough spot. See, Peter knew that the church was under tremendous social and societal pressure. The government was increasingly overreaching. The, the culture was trying to push the church out to the fringes of society. They were likely facing inner turmoil, inner challenges. They were likely experiencing disagreements and conflicts over various things. And, and jobs were likely on the line, livelihoods, and even personal health and safety. Okay, I mean, it was a tumultuous environment. But here's what was fascinating. <laughs> in the midst of this, this context, rather than, than diving into all of the specifics of, of the political and social issues that surrounded the church in exile, rather than telling the people how to vote or what to think about and, and the very specific issues of the day, instead, Peter spoke to the church and invited them to consider what does it look like to function as the body of Christ in the midst of all of these pressures. You want to survive as a church in exile? That's what Peter's writing here. And, and last week he said, you know what? The first thing you do is you start with your relationship with God. You start with your relationship with God. Remember what, we, what he challenged us? He said to be hopeful. <laughs> be secure in what God has done and what God is doing and where God is leading you. Then be humble. Be, be humble. Be, be humble before a holy God and let God move us in the way that he desires. Be holy then as God is holy. That's where we start in our relationship with God. But then naturally, we move to our relationships with each other. Each other. And that's where we are this week. <laughs> Friends, when churches face pressure, and not just churches, but when people groups face pressure, one of the first things to become challenged is our relationships with each other. And so we need to address that here this morning. And Peter does. And, and friends, I stand behind the text. <laughs> Praise God. So I'm going to stand way behind it this morning, and I'm going to let it speak as we interact here together. Would you listen? First uh, Peter 1, verses 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. Peter writes, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, 
love one another earnestly. From a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. Now, friends, there are two primary scenarios that Peter presents here in this passage. There there are two conditions by which he lays out his expectations for the church community. And and we call these conditions indicatives, okay? They're indicatives. They indicate the status of the believer in particular ways. And, And the first indicative comes right away here in verse 22. Peter says, having purified your souls, okay? Having purified your souls. Now, what does that mean? What does Peter mean by that? Well, remember, Peter has just invited the people of God to be holy as God is holy, to to act morally according to the standard that God has established within himself. Because God is who he is, we are to be who he has called us to be, to model after him. And I'm convinced that when Peter says, having purified your souls, he's referencing the moral choices, the moral direction of the people. That's certainly a part of it. But I want to argue that there's more to it than that. It's not just a moral direction. It's also uh, something more. See, the verb phrase here, having purified your souls, is set in a perfect tense. And, And you don't need to know what that means, except that it indicates something that has occurred in the past that remains present in, uh, remains true, remains consistent in the present. Okay? It's occurred in the past. It remains constant in the present. That's perfect tense. And so for that reason, and several others, the indication is that that Peter's not only referencing a moral pursuit, a moral approach, but he's also reflecting a spiritual position. You have purified your souls. You have come to Christ. You have been regenerated. You've been made new in Jesus, and you were that once. There you remain. You've been saved. Okay? This is, this is a reference to salvation. And in fact, the subsequent uh, text indicates as such. Peter says, having purified your souls by what? See the text there? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. By your obedience to the truth. And you'll remember that in the early part of the letter, we observed similar language. Verse 2 says that Peter was writing for the obedience of people to Jesus Christ. And in that, he was contending for their faith, not, not just their moral, uh, moral uh, acquiescence to the ways of Christ, but to actually obeying the gospel. The the truth, Uh, obedience to the truth means submitting to that gospel. It means recognizing that God sets the mark, a mark that I couldn't attain. I missed the mark, but Jesus hits the mark on my behalf. And therefore, if I put my faith in Jesus, repenting of my sin, if I stand with Jesus, I too can be saved. That's obedience to the truth, to the gospel. And then, on top of that, not only obedience to the truth, but also this. In verse 23, Peter says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Now, 
You, you may remember from our second sermon in this series, this concept of being re-begotten, okay? And, and, and if you weren't around, let me explain it to you a little bit. It's not just the idea of being reborn. Remember, Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being reborn. Nicodemus said, how do I uh, become a part of the kingdom of God? Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, you got to be crazy. Jesus says, no, it makes sense if you understand what I'm doing and who I am. Okay, the, the, the concept of being re-begotten is, is, is that, but it's more than that. And earlier, Peter talks about this idea that when we are reborn into Christ, we're also repositioned, we're, we're, we're reportioned into the family of God with a new inheritance, with a new promise. And so everything changes when we come to Christ. We're not just reborn spiritually, we're replaced, not removed from something and put something else in, but reset into what God is doing. And friends, once the Spirit rebegets His people, there's no going back. It's the Spirit who does the rebegetting. And, and once the Spirit does that, there's no going back. These, we're born, we're reborn, we're rebegotten, not of a perishable seed, but of that which is imperishable, that which lasts forever. Okay. When God makes you new, you're His. Signed, sealed, and delivered. And what's his doesn't get lost. He doesn't lose his stuff. I lose my stuff all the time. I leave my tools in my office. Why would you leave your tools in your office? That's silly. That happens to me. God doesn't lose his stuff. And guess what? You are precious to God. You're more precious than anything else in his creation. You're born of, if you're in Christ, of imperishable seed. That which cannot be lost. Now, Peter goes on to describe how the Spirit of God re-begets the people of God. And I want to read this to you again. I just think this is so beautiful. He says, verse 23, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. Guess what happens to grass? <laughs> The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Friends, we're re-begotten, we're saved, we're reborn into the family of God by the Spirit of God through the living and abiding word of God. The things that are required for salvation, church, are written right here. They're written in the text. They're written in God's word. That's why we spent so much time this fall making sure that we have our story straight. What does the Bible, what does the text say about the word of God, about salvation? It's right here. And see, cultural moments come and go. <laughs> Don't they? C cultural moments come and go. I mean, it's always been that way. And really significant, big cultural moments. We could list all kinds of them. The bubonic plague in the Middle Ages, the Spanish flu. We can list 9-11. We can talk about the effects of World War II. All those things, are they important? Of course they are. They're very important in the culture and the life of a people. But they come and they go. But you know what doesn't come and go? You know what sticks? The inerrant, infallible Word of God. This sticks. It's everlasting. God's word does not fade. It does not wither away. The grass fades, 
the flowers fall. The word of the Lord stands forever. <laughs> Church, if it's not the word of God, it's not the euangelizo, it's not the gospel, it's not the good news. And, and, and I, let's just be clear, church, it's not that the gospel doesn't have application in our social contexts, okay? The gospel has significant implications to how we exist within society. But we must be careful. We, we must not assign gospel import to that which the gospel does not clearly articulate. <laughs> See, you can, you and I can, we can debate over several applications of the gospel. We can sit down for coffee, maybe even that latte, maybe even something stronger, who knows? And, and we may have a conversation that we would say, look, I think I disagree with you on how you're approaching that issue. We can debate over several applications, but if we're dying over them, be careful, we, we might be off the rails. Everything God's word means to address specifically, it does. God didn't make a mistake in, writing, in, in inspiring the word of God. The word is sufficient for life and godliness. In everything else, we should be humble. We can be humble, amen? And treat it with humility. And so then, under these conditions, Peter offers this imperative, okay? That was a big, long setup. So what? <laughs> so what? Listen to this, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, here it is, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Church, given what we have in Christ, we must love one another, as Peter has articulated, not, not from a worldly ideology, even that which comes by honest intent, but that which flows from the regenerative work of the Spirit based on and through the Word of God. And here's the thing, church. I think now more than ever, our love is being tested. We're moving debate issues into the die category far too quickly. And, and hear me on this, church. We, we must stand firm on those issues which are of first importance. We must not hedge. We must not budge. We cannot compromise in those places. But conversely, we must continue to love according to that by which we are made new, by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and no compromise there either. Amen? So what's the outcome? What happens when we do that? Well, Peter says it. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. Church, the goal, the outcome of loving one another earnestly and from pure hearts is sincere, brotherly, familial love. The, the term here is Philadelphia, okay? Philadelphia, if you put the accents in the right spot, I think. <laughs> it's the kind of love that, that can, can look somebody in the eye and affirm something. Look, I don't think the same as you on the current social issues we're wrestling with. And I'll just you know, say it, whether they're masks or vaccines or some of the nuances related to racial issues in our country, I might think differently than you on that. 
But in humility, I recognize our familial ties based on what we know from the word of God. You're my brother. You're my sister. You affirm the same gospel. Therefore, my love for you is unflinching and sincere and pure. I will not divide from you over these things. Church, let's be clear. The gospel affirms several propositional truths that have implications on current issues. And my purpose isn't to dive into all of them, but we know what they are. Sexual ethics, sanctity of life, dignity of every human being, caring for the poor, other things. These are things that the church has agreed on for 2,000 years. Okay. And Philadelphia, brotherly love, familial love, is set within a context that is relentlessly committed to what Scripture explicitly affirms. Does Scripture explicitly affirm some things? Say yes. Amen. It does. But what Philadelphia is unwilling to do is, is to divide over issues that Scripture doesn't. Okay. I, Howard Marshall, said it should be obvious to everyone that the failure of Christians to agree on central issues impairs their witness, a failure so great that often churches cannot work together in the proclamation of the gospel. Then he continues, he says, what is more worrying is the way in which Christians tend to divide over issues of peripheral importance, taking rigid stances in matters on which scripture has nothing to say or is ambiguous. And more worrying still is the failure of Christians to love one another and so to create the atmosphere in which some progress might be made toward the resolution of conflicts. Church, we we must love one another earnestly. (laughs) Not not pretend. Not, not, Not fake, not with pretense. But earnestly. And from pure hearts. Not hearts that are conflicted, not hearts that are letting in all kinds of other things from, from the world. But we must love one another with, with sincerity and, and, and from pure hearts, earnestly, such that sincere brotherly love pervades our culture, our ethos. You know, one of the things that I, I just love hearing, and I, I hear this regularly, friends, is that when people walk in the doors at Cornerstone, they, they, they notice these people like each other. That's weird. <laughs> they, they love each other. They seem to care about each other. Church, what a witness to a watching world. What a powerful witness. Jesus talks about it in, in his upper room discourse in, in the Gospel of John. Church, when we love each other the way that God has designed us to love, when we set aside those differences that do not divide, that do not destroy, then, then, and when we say, I can think differently on you uh, about this than, than you, and I can still love you. Church, that is a profound witness to a watching and a dying world. It's profound. And I I said, I'm not here to beat you up. I want to commend you on that. I see that all over the place. Now, there's a second scenario here, okay? And and it'll go faster than the first one, I promise. (laughs) The second scenario that Peter represents to his readers comes in verses 1 through 3 of the second chapter. And and here's what he says. Follow along, would you? He says, so put away all malice, (laughs) And all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. 
Now, there's an indicative here as well. All right, verse 3 uh, is where it is. Peter says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, if indeed you have done as such. And it's another way to say that is since you've tasted God's goodness. The words if and since often are interchangeable in the New Testament. Since you've tasted God's goodness. And here Peter's quoting Psalm 34 as he develops a metaphor. He's developing a metaphor for spiritual milk. And he's saying in effect, look, you've been born again. You've tasted God's goodness. You've tasted relationship with God, the gospel. You've tasted his word. And because of that, this is what you must do. All right? The indicative drives an imperative. And the imperative is this. Like, like newborn babes, <laughs> newborn infants that remain insatiable until they get milk. Anybody testify to that? Those babies are awesome. They're beautiful. But man, they, when they want to eat, it's time. Let's go, right? Like newborn babes that are insatiable until they get milk. Peter says, crave the kind of nourishment that comes from God pure spiritual milk. We must crave that which is pure and spiritual. We must crave pure spiritual milk. Now, it bears asking, what do we mean specifically by milk here? And, and there's been no shortage of ink spilled over that specific question. Okay, You can read commentators. They'll give you all kinds of things. And they're all well thought out, I'm sure, and good. And, and for simplicity here this morning, I just wanna, I want us to look at the adjective there. See, there's an adjective for the word milk, and it's the word spiritual. And the word spiritual is translated from the Greek word logikos, okay? And the Greek word logikos comes from the Greek word logos, which is the, a translation for the word word, okay? Logos is word. John references the word uh, as Jesus Christ himself, but, but more generally, it's a reference to the Scripture. Now, when we see logikos in this context... The bottom line, I believe, is this. Logikos is a reference to the source of life from which spiritual men are saved and women are saved from their depravity, including and maybe even primarily the Word of God. Milk is a nourishing substance, yeah? Pure spiritual milk is that which nourishes our faith, which, which provides life to our faith, primarily through the Logikos uh, milk, the, the Word of God. And regardless of the details, Peter's saying, look, don't try to add to what God supplies. Don't, don't water it down either. Drink it straight up. <laughs> Drink from the word of God. Drink pure spiritual milk. Understand that what God supplies is what you need. Nothing more and nothing less. Crave what God is offering. Now, in verse 1, I want to address, it looks like we have an additional imperative there, all right? So Peter says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. But, but it's actually not a direct imperative when you look at the original language. It's a participle. And, 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 and again, you don't really need to know what participle means, except that a more literal way to translate this would be to, to translate it, so having put away. So having put away. It's something that conditions your spiritual cravings. And so if I read it that way, we would say, so having put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. Okay? And do you notice the conditions here? You notice how Peter conditions the pure spiritual milk? He says, having put away malice, de deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. 
These are all things, rather than building into this sense of Philadelphia, this, this sincere, brotherly, familial love that we discussed moments ago, these are the things that tear it down. Peter says, craving pure spiritual things and remaining relationally destructive. They don't go together. Let me say that again. Craving pure spiritual things and remaining relationally destructive do not go together. Conversely, if you really crave the things of God, examine how you're treating your brothers and sisters in Christ. Examine what you're saying about them. (laughs) Examine how you feel about them. Are you harboring malice, hatred? Are you lying to them? Are you lying about them? Are you pretending to be somebody you're not? I mean, hypocrisy goes a long way in developing authentic relationships, right? (laughs) It, it, It stops them short. Are you faking it? Do you wish that what they had was yours? Are you envying their position in our community? How much money they make? What you perceive to be their home life? Are you not only lying about them, but are you, are you trying to bring them down? Are you slandering them? We're pretty subtle at slandering, aren't we? We get pretty sneaky at it. But are we trying to bring somebody else down by building ourselves up? Are we meaning to cause people harm? <laughs> Friends, you, you can't claim spiritual growth if you ignore relational health. You can't claim spiritual growth if you ignore relational health, especially in this context, within the family of God. Now, we're going to talk about what it means to to, to develop relationships and to be in relationship with people outside the family of God. But the context today is within. You can't claim spiritual growth if you ignore relational health. And so the outcome of craving pure spiritual milk in the context of healthy relationships is reflected in verse 2. Peter says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. (laughs) Who doesn't want to be a grown-up, right? I want to be grown-up. We, we all want to demonstrate maturity, especially within the family, especially in our walk with God. Church, the outcome of tasting God's goodness and craving God's nourishment as we cast aside that which is relationally destructive is spiritual maturity. <laughs> it's maturity. And spiritual maturity looks like sincere brotherly love. It looks like putting off malice. It looks like uh, putting off deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. It looks like loving one another relentlessly with sincerity and purity in spite of our differences. It looks like affirming and clinging to the word of God and holding loosely so many other things, church. And friends, as we move to a close here together, I I want us to consider a principle. And I think this principle sometimes... (laughs) is under-considered in the church these days. I'm convinced that what Peter is communicating here is that spiritual maturity and relational maturity go together. In other words, you can't be spiritually healthy without being relationally healthy. Spiritual maturity requires relational maturity. They go hand in hand. 
It doesn't mean that if you're relationally uh, mature, perhaps if you're relationally in a good place with other people, that you're automatically spiritually mature. But on the flip side, I'm saying, you can't be spiritually mature if you ignore your relationships. (laughs) My heart this morning is that you not feel beaten up. Because I mean every word when I say, you're doing a good job, church. I commend you. But I'm watching where we are in our current culture. And, and, and we've got some things that, you know, we thought we were going to be over in just a couple of weeks. And here we are almost two years in and, and we're still dealing with them. And it's hard. Is it hard for anybody else? It's hard. It's hard to watch people we love get sick. It's hard to watch people we love get angry over certain issues that, that we just never would have even thought about a couple of years ago. It's hard to to see things different than they were. Church, as we continue to navigate through this time, Peter gives us such clear, such beautiful marching orders, if you will. You want to survive in exile? Don't neglect loving each other. Don't stop, is my exhortation this morning. You're doing well. (laughs) Keep it up. And don't let what Scripture doesn't speak to explicitly be the thing that pushes you out or pushes you in too far. And see, the the pandemic, it'll continue. The news cycle will remain. And it'll challenge us and, and many other things to give our attention to those things over and over, above and against everything else. We're going to face increasing pressure to capitulate to, to one extreme or another, to make everything something to die for, or to let social constructs dictate our thinking and acting over and against the Word of God, thereby dividing us from what really matters, from God Himself, from His Word, and from each other. So don't go there. Let's not go there, Amen. Let's stand firm. Doggone it, let's stand firm. (laughs) Surviving in exile requires us to stick together, to love each other with purity and sincerity as we crave together the things of God. So here's my commitment. I'm not giving up on you. Okay? Don't give up on me either. Don't give up on each other. Let's stick together in the Word of God. And let's remember as Peter references Isaiah, (laughs) all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. What happens to grass in the winter? Poof. We get new grass in in the spring. Now you scientists, maybe I said that wrong. Maybe it just goes dormant and turns green again. I don't know. You get it, right? All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but what? The word of the Lord remains how long? Might as well think about forever. Amen? That's what really matters. And this is the, the word, the good news that was preached to you. Stand in the good news, church. Stand together. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for this church body. I'm so grateful for the the many uh, just edifying, sometimes terrifying, sometimes challenging conversations we've had over the last couple of years. 
And I think over and over, whether people are, are listening online this morning and wrestling with, with different issues that we're dealing with in different ways, or whether they're here this morning, wherever we're at, God, I thank you. I, I thank you that we stand not on our, our social alliances. We stand not on the events of current culture and how we respond to them, but we stand together on that which lasts. We stand together on the word of God brought to us at Christmas in the form of a little tiny baby. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And the Word came to bring life and hope and peace. And all who believe in the Word, all who receive Him, to them He gives the right to become re-begotten as children of God. Lord, as we consider that gospel truth, as we consider who You are and what You've done in us, may we stand firm together. May we edify each other. May we build one another up all for the glory of your kingdom and what you're doing. God, we love you and we trust you with all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.